already looked at the first five verses. I want to read the scriptures and then uh, have the time of comment. Okay, verse 1. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Verse 4 which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's bread, Aaron's rod, that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Let's pray. Lord, these are such weighty things. Uh, The most holy place, the holy place, limited to only priests, only men, priests that were 30 years old and upward and only had their priestly duty. And this most holy place, only one person could enter on one day. Oh, God. These were holy, holy, holy things for centuries because it's all about sin and having sin forgiven. Lord, I pray that in our search and looking into Hebrews 9 this morning, you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and wills to obey what is in your heart for each of us this morning. Lord, I, I thank you for speaking clearly to us in these days, this side of Calvary. And I pray that your word would speak clearly to each of us this morning. Lord, as I blow the shofar this morning, I pray I'd blow a clear and distinct sound with this horn and that I'd share a distinct and clear word from my heart. And Lord, even beyond that, something from your heart that you long to communicate to your people. Would you speak to us in a personal, intimate way this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in order to demonstrate the superiority of the atoning work of Christ, the writer to the Hebrews, and especially to these Jewish believers that were living in Rome, he was sharing with them about the significant and the detailed items of the two most sacred places in the temple of which these Jews that he wrote to would have been very familiar with since this was written before 70 AD and we've looked at that in previous times in our study of Hebrews but he first describes the holy place restricted to male priests only 30 years old and upward and only during their 
annual cycle of priestly duty, which they only discovered in 1983. I'll never forget living in Jerusalem when they found out how long the priests could serve in the inner court. 14 continuous days. That's it throughout the whole year. Then he also describes some of the items that were in the most holy place or called the Holy of Holies in the temple. That place was the most restrictive. Only one man priest selected to be the high priest could enter this most sacred holy place only one time on one day of the entire year. Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. Now all of the items in both of these sacred places had spiritual significance. But the mercy seat in the most holy place or the holy of holies stood above the Ark of the Covenant and that was the most sacred piece of furniture in the entire temple. And even though the rituals of the ancient tabernacle were observed with both dignity and honor, they failed to provide free access to the presence of God. The place where a person could dwell in a place of continual poured out mercy. And there's much to comment on each of the items that were in both places and its significance. But the writer chose specifically not to speak in detail of these things because there was something more major in his heart that the Spirit had put there that he wanted to focus their attention. So let's look back to verse 5. Verse 5, there's this phrase, the cherubim of glory were overshadowing the mercy seat. Now cherubim are mighty angels. And one of the functions of the cherubim was to serve as guardians. And these angels guarded the entrance to the tree of life, as we see in Genesis 3. And they also had guardianship of the most holy place, as we see in Exodus 26. And in Exodus 25, verse 20, it describes how they were shaped from gold. It says, And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, hovering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face each other. Wow. And the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. So in a way, they had their wings outstretched, Long wings coming down, they're both pointing and they're both looking down at the mercy seat. Their eyes were continually toward this one most sacred place. The place of atonement. The place of forgiveness. The centermost place in the purposes of God. Forgiveness. Okay. You've got the picture. And they were also called the cherubim of divine glory, referring to God's glory, which hovered over the ark of the covenant, Exodus 40 and Leviticus 16. Now, the Greek word for mercy seat is the Greek word helasterion. It doesn't mean much to any of us that don't speak Greek. But it's only used twice in all the New Testament. Here, it's referred to as mercy seat, 
But in Romans 3.25, the only other place where it's mentioned, hilasterion, it is translated not as mercy seat, but as propitiation. Interesting, that's mercy seat in one place, propitiation in another. Now, the root meaning of the word propitiation is that of appeasing or placating or making reparation for an offended deity. That's what the dictionary says. And applied to the sacrifice of Christ in that regard, the word suggests that Christ's death was propitiatory. Propitiatory. Man, that's harder than a lot of Hebrew words. Propitiatory. Averting the wrath of God from the sinner. Now look to verse 6. Verse 6 says, When these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle. That's the holy place or the inner court. But into the second part, verse 7, which is the most holy place or the holy of holies, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sin and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Verse 8, and the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Let's look again at verse 7. Only the high priest could go into this part of the tabernacle or the temple, into the holiest of all. We see that back in verse 3. And he could only go one time each year to offer the blood of an animal to cover his own sins and the sins of the people. Now, the most holy place was a relatively small room in perspective of the vast area that the temple in, in its entirety really covered. The temple mountain area is really quite large. And among the other items, the Ark of the Covenant was there. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, this served as the atonement cover or the altar on which the blood would be sprinkled by the high priest on this day of atonement. This area, as I mentioned earlier, was the most sacred place for all Jewish people. And only one person could ever see it, ever. One person on one day who could atone for sin by bringing that blood and putting it on that top mercy seat. The other priests or everyone else were forbidden to, forbidden to enter that holy room. And what's interesting is that the only access that people had to forgiveness of sins was through a priest. And in regards to forgiveness of sin, only the high priest could do that only on one day throughout the whole year, Yom Kippur. That means you had a stack of sins all throughout the whole year that couldn't be forgiven until that one day happened. Wow. You see, this is part of the carryover that the early church in Rome has kept throughout the ages. The priest is able to absolve a person of their sins. Not forgive, but bring the witness of forgiveness because of confession. It's much like a pardon that frees a person from the penalty of their crimes. 
And in like manner, the priest gives a person absolution and a confessional. But all throughout the Old Covenant, there was never a final or complete offering for sins. Then this ritual had to be performed for centuries. Now, the early Jewish priests had no power to absolve a person's conscience or to cleanse them from the guilt that weighed upon them because of the sin. It's one thing to have sin forgiven. It's another thing to have the guilt removed. But Jesus, Yeshua, as the better high priest, with limitless divine power, has not only the power to forgive sin, but he also has the power to remove and to heal all of sin's residue on the human soul. Wow. Both forgiveness of sin and healing for the wounded soul are available in Jesus Yeshua. What a wonderful Savior we have. How wonderful, how marvelous is our Savior. Look at verse 10. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies. Physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. Now, verse 9 tells us that all of this ceremonial ritual for forgiveness of sin foreshadowed the coming of Messiah Yeshua because he became the eternal high priest for not only the Jewish people, but for all the peoples of the earth. And in the new covenant, Yeshua's death, his burial, and his resurrection provide cleansing for all sin and guilt. And only in and through this high priest, Yeshua, can every man and woman have a clear conscience before God. Now, what is conscience? You discuss that at your tables. Dictionary says simply it's an inner feeling or an inner voice acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. Now let's look at verse 14 again. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. At the point of conversion, not only is sin forgiven, but the burden of guilt is lifted and the conscience is cleansed by the precious blood of Christ Jesus. And we can all thank God for 1 John 1 verse 9 that says, if we confess our sins... 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. After Jesus died, this most holy high priest, he entered the most holy place, the holy of holies, seat altar to a blood on the mercy seat. That mercy seat altar to atone for sin. And he didn't put on that mercy seat the blood of an animal. But his own innocent blood to atone for sin. And not his sin. Because he was sinless and he was perfect. And not just the sins of the people of Israel. But his blood atoned for the sins of every man. Every woman, every child that has ever lived. Do you see the enormous power in the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world? What a Savior the world has been given that from every tribe and every tongue and every religion and every non-religion, rich and poor, slave or free, young or old, Everyone, everywhere can have their sins forgiven because of the blood sacrifice of this one man for all eternity. What a Savior. What a Savior. And this writer to the Hebrews is trying to reinstill this thought in Jewish believers who were being led astray because of persecution. So he needed to bring them back, not just to the old covenant mentality, but to the new covenant revelation that there is an only one person, Yeshua, the Lord. Wow. Personally, I've battled at times, and I've had some significant times in my life where I really battled a guilty conscience. Anyone can relate to that? Every hand should have been up. We all can relate to it. But I want to just say this this morning, and the Lord put some things in my heart this morning, just this morning, that he added to what he wants me to share this morning. And I, I really feel he wants to breathe something into your hearts and your spirit. If you continue to battle with a guilty conscience, after you've wholeheartedly repented of the sin that you committed, yet you've been mindful of both wrongdoing and the lack of right doing. You've confessed it. You've repented of it. You've really asked God to forgive you. And he has. But you've not realized it to a place of having your conscience cleansed. And I want to suggest that one of three things is happening. Number one, the devil is accusing you. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And man, I've heard him speak loud and clear to me. What condemnation comes after he speaks? He'll bring all kinds of thoughts to your mind like you remember when you did this? What a bad person you were. You're a bad person, period. He'll remind you of a terrible mistake from your past. But friends, do not listen to the devil. We can hear him, but don't listen to him. Immediately go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. 
and every weak area and sinful area of our past, the devil can use to tempt and condemn us. Jesus wants to wash and cleanse our conscience from all the evil that we've done. Not just forgiveness, he wants to cleanse us. He wants to scrub our souls. So he accuses. Secondly, perhaps you've not forgiven yourself. I know what that's like. I've shared in our class uh, maybe a year ago or a couple years ago. Back in the 70s, I had a girlfriend that I, Lord showed me I really defraud her because I let her believe that I was going to probably marry her. And I had no intention of marrying her. And the day that I broke off the relationship with her and I moved to another city, I found that she went out. That next weekend got pregnant, went to bed with the guy and got pregnant. The guilt, the self-condemnation. I couldn't forgive myself. I had been a believer for seven years. She was a brand new believer. A year and a half I struggled with incredible guilt. Sometimes it's easier to receive God's forgiveness than to really forgive yourself. But the truth is, you are forgiven by God. And we have to first believe that truth. We are forgiven by God. And if God Almighty has forgiven us, we must forgive ourselves. And here's the power of the blood of Jesus. That the blood of Jesus would cleanse you from an evil conscience. He will wash our conscience. So what I had to do is I had to apply the blood to that whole area of relationship in my life that was skewed, that was condemning me. So in your personal prayer time with God, just say, Lord, I take the blood of Jesus and I apply your blood to an area where I feel so condemned. I feel so guilty. My conscience is not clean. And I pray that you'd wash me with your blood, Lord. Your blood is sufficient. It's that powerful to not only forgive, but to cleanse. Wash me clean, Lord. Cleanse me from all iniquity. After a year and a half of being in bondage to guilt, the Lord freed me. He freed me. I continually look to pray, wash my conscience. And I pray your blood over all that area of sinfulness. The devil accuses us. We've not forgiven ourselves. Or thirdly, you may need to make restitution. <laughs> That's something you're going to have to work out with God. That's something you hear little about today. But whenever we've injured someone or cheated someone, God allows our conscience to bother us until we make things right with that person. I got saved in 1972, and right after I got saved, I felt the Lord was moving me from Maui, Hawaii to L.A. Well, that had to have been God. That for sure was not me. 
from paradise to pollution. But I had to get rid of my things, and I had a 1958 Willis Jeep. That was in, it looked great on the outside. I had a great paint job and this and that, and it ran great, but you know what? The transmission would pop out almost continually from time to time, and I just knew how to take off the thing. Got my fingers all greasy. I knew how to do it. And I remember the person who I sold it to. He says, is everything working properly? Oh, sure it is. Everything's wonderful. Oh, no, it's right. Tim just knows. And God didn't leave me alone with that. He said, I want you to fly back to Maui. I was living in Los Angeles at that time. He said, okay, you need to go back for restitution's sake and look to make it right. Friends, it will cost us in restitution, and there's a lot of humility involved, and that's good. God gives grace to the humble. He resists proud hearts. But he lavishly pours out grace to the humble. And I had to humble myself. And I had to risk, who knows, he might shoot me. Yeah, you never know what's going to happen with restitution. But if you're humble, people will recognize it. If your heart is right toward God, he'll acknowledge that by people receiving your humble apology and will extend forgiveness and take your restitution. Within the new covenant, we have available in Christ a complete cleansing of our conscience, especially from all guilt, from all condemnation. We don't have to carry the weight of guilt and shame. It's heavy. I know. I've lived it. And some of you, some of you need a fresh cleansing of your soul this morning. The devil's been accusing. You've not forgiven yourself. You need to make restitution. I want to pray that the Lord would work these things into our lives. Father, we, we really pray that every one of the devil's accusations, we would recognize it and immediately confront it with the word of God. Jesus, you showed us how to confront evil when it's confronting us, when it's speaking things that are tempting us. Lord, I pray you'd get us in your word. I pray your word would be alive in us. Thy word have I hid in my heart. I've meditated upon thy word day and night. Lord, grant us, grant us a greater power within us in your word to overcome the lies of the devil. And Lord, some of us need to forgive ourselves. Lord, if you've forgiven us, we no longer need to hold on to it. And I pray that your blood would cleanse every area of an evil conscience of acts that were done, words that were said, actions that were committed, unjust things that happened to us, devastating things to some of us. That we could forgive or perhaps things that have been devastating done through us.
and we just can't forgive ourselves. In the name of Jesus, I pray the cleansing blood of the Lamb of God to cover all of that guilty conscience. To wash you clean and white as snow. And there are those that may need to make restitution. Lord, I just cited that one incidence with that Jeep. Lord, there have been numerous times where I've needed to make restitution. It's a biblical pattern, and I pray that, Holy Spirit, if you're speaking to an area that needs to be made right with restitution following, I pray that there would not be a resistance in the heart of every man or woman. We yield to the obedience of Christ. I want to close this session by praying over you what Paul prayed over all the Ephesians in Ephesians 3. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all of God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is for you. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. But then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Father, I just thank you for these precious people, and I thank you for Paul's prayer. Lord, we, we just welcome that prayer over the Ephesians, we welcome it over our personal lives today. Thank you that as we go, we go with you every step of the journey. For Jesus' sake and in his holy and wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, Ronnie. I read Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 19, and I read it out of the New Living Translation.